Hey y'all, welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie, that's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to do science. Except this week, because it's BS week, y'all. As has become our habit, I think we will not end up where we thought we would when discussing our BA and his science this week. It has nothing to do with the fact that the BA himself is a nice guy, which we always knew about this particular guy. Uh, but does science and his reputation really take a turn? And so that's what we'll be getting into this week. But first, let's deal with weekly business. You might be wondering how to make sure that other people can find us. The best way to do that is to rate, review, follow, like, or whatever our podcast, wherever you listen. It's totally free. It takes almost no time at all to tap the little button and helps other people know they want to be here listening. If you have something you need to know, maybe a suggestion for an episode or an answer to a question or homework assignment that we gave, you can email us at bainscience at gmail.com. You can also DM us on Facebook or Instagram. We're at bainscience, both of those places. Finally, if you can't get enough of us because no one but our husband can, you can become a podcast supporter on Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com, search for bainscience and subscribe. And for the low price of $5 a month, you can get early access to episodes, plus our entire catalog of bonus content, including special episodes during the season and our summer series. You can even try it out for a week for free because I've got like a free trial thing going on right now. So go over there, find us, become a supporter. All right. So do we have any addendums from last episode before we get started? Now, I just have like a short little one. Of course, dad in the research department came through and gave us several Spanish scientists mm. that we had not considered yet. So I'll be researching those to see if any of them reach the level of BA status. So that's cool. Uh, do you have any addendums? It's an artifact. It's not like we didn't say there weren't good Spanish scientists, but they've definitely not gotten like it's not like they recognized any of those names. No, I didn't either. That's yeah, why we. Okay. That's why they have escaped our notice. So, okay. but I will. I will be looking into them. So. All right. Um. Well, Mom actually found an article. It's in Spanish, but she sent it in Google. Thank you, translated. Um. But this was as of um ten twenty five. So just recently, oh wow, there is now in or at the University of Zaragoza in Aragon, which is um, where he studied and taught, there is a permanent exhibition now for Santi. That's great. See, this is what we asked for, Spain. Yeah. And it was 117 years since he was awarded the Nobel Prize when they like opened the exhibition or whatever. Oh, okay. And um, it's dedicated to showing aspects of the person and professional figure of the neuroscientist. So I'm looking through this article, but um, microscopes, models have been gathered, some of his other work that have never been shown before, some of his books, some mm -hmm. drawings, photography, the central spaces, the great anatomical atlas which is kept by the university library because he contributed um 12 plates so that's only on public view for like a month because it's like very special and very delicate mm -hmm. um but yeah so there is now thankful not just a storage closet 
Yay. That's what we like to see. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're going to rotate some of his documents and works so that it's more like alive is how this translates it or whatever, but kind of like making sure that people know about him, which I think is really cool. Yeah, no, that's really great. So good job, Spain. That's what we wanted. Good job. Cool. Yeah. So thanks, mom, for finding that because it's like we spoke it and it happened. That was kind of cool. That's really, I like that. If if only all of the things we said on this podcast came true. Seriously. That's all I got. All right. Well, um, yeah, I don't have anything else. So let's take a break and then we will get started on this week's BA and BS. I have the bio this week and I got to go down a few very interesting rabbit holes with it. So it's kind of cool. It's not super long, which means I did get to, you know, chase those storylines wherever I saw necessary. But before I get started, Brenna, give us our quote and then tell us who we've got today. After decades of burning leaded gasoline, lead was everywhere in this country, in the air, in the dust and soil where kids played. A representative national sample of children ages 5 and under in the 1970s found that 99.8% of kids had elevated levels of lead in their blood. That last 0.2% is less than the margin of error for the study. Basically, the children of the United States were all lead poisoned. Well, that's horrible. That's a quote from a book called Unleaded, How Changing Our Gasoline Changed Everything by Carrie Nielsen. But it is about the subject of our BA, or no, BS episode today. Yeah. Um, And it's about Thomas Midgley, who we can not thank for leaded gasoline. No, which the whole thing is kind of sad. So we'll talk about it. Yeah. Because honestly, based on everything I've read, we've got another really good scientist who came up with unintentionally not so great science. Yeah. And I know that, Brenna, you're going to tell us more about all of that. And I'm going to tell you the life story of a guy who was doing his best, even when it was potentially the worst. So Thomas Midgley Jr., the only child in his family, was born on May 18th. 1889 to parents Thomas Sr. and Hattie in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Thomas Sr. was a national road champion on the high bicycle. He won a 24-hour race around Washington, D.C. by going 220 miles without getting off once, which is wild. What's a high bike? You know those bikes where I have a giant front wheel and a little back wheel? I think it's one of those. Really? Yeah. It's 1889. And this would have been before that. So, yeah. And he stayed on it for 220 some miles? 220 miles around Washington, D.C. without getting off once. For how many, How long did that take him? Didn't say. So he just, he peed him, he, he peed his pants. Had to have, repeatedly, right? And this is, like, when you have small children, these are the things you think about. Like, he didn't take bathroom breaks. He he, he definitely went. Oh, my mind instantly went there, too. Okay. I was like, wait a minute. Would he have just been peeing himself? Yeah, because adult diapers wouldn't have been a thing. He definitely just peed right down his leg, right all the way off that high bike. All the way. Mm, okay. Well, yeah. It's questionable behavior, but all right. It is. But Tom Sr. also worked in the rubber research field and invented the first demountable tire rims for car, making changing a flat easier and more reliable. So that's kind of a big deal. Hmm. 
Now, Hattie's maiden name was Emerson, and she was a relative of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Ooh, which is cool. That is cool. The Midgley family moved to New Jersey when Tom, little Tom, was four, and then to Columbus, Ohio, when he was six. Hmm. Went to public school there until about halfway through high school. Now, Midge, as his friends called him, and we'll be calling him that, I'll be calling him that. His friends called him Midge. Was an athletic guy. He played on the school baseball and football teams. He contributed in a kind of gross and weird way as to how baseball is played, too. So... Midge was playing when the spitball was becoming popular, and and it's now illegal. You can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, But what pitchers would do is they would use spit or mud to affect the velocity of the ball when it's thrown. Mm -hmm. So Midge used the extract from the bark of the slippery elm, and lots of baseball pitchers picked up that practice until they said no more of that. You can't Mm -hmm. alter the ball. That's illegal. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was Midge. Mm. So, halfway through high school, Midge's parents sent him to Connecticut for a college prep at Betts Academy in Stamford, which sounds very bougie. He continued to play sports there, and he developed an interest in chemistry. Now, Midge had a particular love of the periodic table and was known to carry one around with him wherever he went, even as he got older, which I think is great, because as I tell my students when they say, do we have to memorize the periodic table, I say, no, the whole point of having the periodic table is so you didn't have to remember literally any of this. So you'll get familiar with it, but you have to memorize it. Like, Except for it feels like if you really loved it, he would have memorized it. So maybe his commitment isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. It, you make a valid point, so not sure. But he loved I mean, do I have the periodic table memorized? Like all of it? No, because I'm an organic chemist and I only need like four elements on it. So I know about those, but like, I was going to say, you're not in metals, the lanthanides. Nobody knows about transition metals. Stop it. They're the worst. I mean, inorganic professors and scientists do, but like inorganic is two thumbs down. Mm, Sorry. Sorry. Mm, I'll take tonight. I'll take tonight. Well, I mean, you know, I was telling my biochem students the other day, it's like inorganic People were just like, let's take all the rules that you've learned literally throughout all of your career studying general chemistry and organic chemistry, and let's just like screw with those rules. Uh, that's stressful. I'm stressed out. I don't like it. No, I'm stressed out. I just don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it either. Well, either way, Midge had a love of the periodic table, so he kept one with him wherever he went. Okay. When he graduated, Midge went to Cornell University and majored in mechanical engineering. He was really devoted to experimentation while working through school, like so much so that he didn't really spend a lot of time in student activities. Um, He did form an aviation club once, even though they didn't have an airplane or a glider. Okay. What did they do? Talk about how much they liked airplanes? uh, Maybe. Hard to say. I don't know. I'm not sure. Also, I thought you told us he had developed a love for chemistry. So why is he doing mechanical engineering? Again, I don't know. Okay. I I don't know, but that's what he did. Okay. He graduated in 1911 with a degree in mechanical engineering and also a wife. Oh, okay. Well, pick one up along the way. Great. Yeah. Well, Midge met a girl named Carrie Reynolds, who was a student at Ohio Wesleyan University. They got married a month or so after Midge graduated and settled down in lovely Dayton, Ohio. 
Now it's not pronounced Dayton. I just did that so you could hear it over like the podcast. It's pronounced Dayton. That's facts. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know all of this and I know that it's lovely because Brenna and I spent most of our formative years there. Mm -hmm. Dayton was then and continues to be a happening place. Okay. It's happening. It's, I mean, you know, it's not quite as metropolitan as a place like Chicago, but it's definitely got a big city feel. At the same time, I just tell, I just tell my students who haven't been to Ohio, they're not missing out. Just don't go. You're the worst. I know. You're the worst. You're obviously not a tourism spokesperson. Also, I mean, but I still happen to live near Dayton, so it matters to me, but it's not a big like it's not Chicago but it can feel like a big city but also it's easy to know people and the community feels small town sometimes mm-hmm. as of this recording in 2023 Dayton is well known for three things as dad would say eds meds and feds in the education department we've got Wright State University University of Dayton excellent community colleges some small liberal arts schools near the city so that's mm-hmm. pretty great okay Dayton is also home to Premier Health Partners, one of the best hospital systems in the state. Their main campus in downtown Dayton has the only level one trauma center in the region. Plus, Dayton has Kettering Health Network, another major hospital system with an excellent reputation, hence the meds category. Mm-hmm. And then you've got feds and around Dayton, the federal government has a large presence by way of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or Wright-Pat as it's colloquially known. Uh, if you're wondering, yes, the quote-unquote Wright portion of the names comes from the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur Wright, who had a bicycle shop in Kettering, a Dayton suburb, and also figured out a little thing called the airplane. Kind of a Because big also North Carolina, Ohio did it first, so stop it. I was going to say that. I had it written in my notes that I was calling out anyone who listens from North Carolina to say you were not first in flight. Just because they had to take the plane there doesn't mean that you had anything to do with it except the geography. Like, I'll throw shade on, like, visiting Ohio, Hmm, you know, but I'm sorry, we did it first. Facts. So, I mean, mean, we just did. Yeah, it doesn't matter they took their plane to your state. doesn't matter. Like, they weren't from- They could have taken it anywhere. They lived and figured it all out in Ohio, in Kettering, Ohio, in fact, so. I mean, yeah. So that, I I feel strongly about that, but that's probably because, like, you know, literally every year in elementary school growing up in Ohio, you have to learn about the Wright brothers, so- they're kind of a big deal here. Yeah. I mean, one of the airplanes, a big deal. And other other interesting things have happened, like at Wright Pat. The base was actually home to the negotiations to end the Bosnian War in 1995. No and, way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's called the Dayton Agreement and it ended the war. Yeah. Oh, I know. That. We were we were living here at that time and I didn't know that. So that is not all Dayton is known for, however. That's just the big three. I know Brenna has heard of this company because we had friends we went to school with who's parents worked there, but perhaps our listeners have heard of a little company called National Cash Register or NCR. Do they exist anymore? I don't even know. I got a story about NCR. It was founded in Dayton in 1884, and it was one of the biggest employers in the area for almost 100 years. In the early 2000s, NCR moved its headquarters to, get this, Gwinnett County, Georgia, and currently hangs out in Midtown Atlanta. Wow. I know know those places. You do know those places. NCR began as a company to manufacture and sell the first mechanical cash register. Now, that was invented in 1879 by a guy named James Ritty. But in 1884, John and Frank Patterson, yes, that's where Patterson from the right pat comes from. They bought the patents to the cash register and to Ritty's company and NCR was born. 
John Patterson made NCR into a truly modern American company and established a sales training school in 1893, which was the first of its kind. A guy named Thomas Watson worked there until 1914. Now, his motto was think, and he was always saying that the best salespeople think all the time. The think symbol became widely known as a symbol of a little company called International Business Machines, or IBM, which Watson had a hand in creating. As if that's not enough. Isn't there like AI thing called Watson? Yeah. Yeah. That's why. As if that's not enough, a guy named Charles F. Kettering worked for NCR. Yes, his is the family that an entire city is named for in Dayton, as well as the health system I mentioned, Kettering. Yeah, that's that's him. Mm -hmm. In 1906, Kettering designed the first cash register powered by an electric motor. He also developed the Class 1000 register that was produced for like 40 years. Hmm. Kettering also founded the Dayton Engineering Laboratories Company, which became the Delco Electronics Division of General Motors. There is still a Delco Park in the Dayton area today. So put those last details in your satchel, though, because they're going to come back. Okay. Okay. Now, as much as we're all enjoying the who's who and where's where of Dayton, we need to connect all this information to our BA, Midge. The reason that Midge settled down with his wife in Dayton is because he got a job at NCR. Midge started out in Inventions Department Number 3, the same place where Kettering had started seven years earlier. Midge only worked there for a year, however, because his dad needed him to work at the family business, which was a tire company. Okay. But the tire venture turned out to be a bust, so Midge ended up having to get a job somewhere else. During the time he worked for his dad, Midge had really become enamored of automobiles and everything about them. So it's 1916, and Midge thought, hey, maybe I should find work in the automobile industry since I like cars so much. Well, remember how I told you that Kettering founded a company called Delco that GM ended up acquiring? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kettering was working on new automobile starters, like pretty important car stuff. Midge got hired at Delco, and Charles Kettering himself, who wrote one of the bios, he actually wrote one of the biographies on Midge that I read, said that the decision to work there was, quote, the most important one of his whole life. So now Midge is 27 years old, and he would do some amazing work for the next 15 years of his life, notably on engine knocking. Uh, Pretty much none of us know what that is because cars don't do it anymore, thanks to Midge, kind of, but I'm not going to discuss any more of that because Brennan's going to deal with it. What I will discuss is Midge's personal life. In 1912, before joining Delco, he and Carrie had their first child, a daughter named Jane. In 1914, they had a son, Thomas III. In the late 1920s, the family moved to Worthington, Ohio, which was all farmland at the time. It's northeast of Dayton. In the 1930s, while prohibition was still a thing and the country was dealing with the great, not big, like big not awesome right the great depression Mm -hmm. midge hired 40 guys to dig what became known as the caves under the house there were passageways and rooms built from stone and each room served a different kind of special wine okay so these tunnels like serve an actual purpose whereas i'm not sure what ada lovelace's husband was digging tunnels for his were less specifically targeted at breaking the law versus where midges were like, prohibition, nuts to that, let's drink. Yeah. I mean, I could maybe get behind having tunnels to do that versus yeah, just for like sure. a guy who just like felt like digging tunnels for the fun of it. 
anyway, that's fair. So that was one thing that Midge was into. Okay. Midge also Billy liked tunnels. Midge also like Midge also liked to golf. He played in the low 70s, which is apparently good. I don't know. He thought that the grass on golf course greens was cool. And so mm-hmm. he planted a variety called Washington Bent on 3.5 acres of his property. Okay. He connected his telephone to his sprinkler system so he could dial water and insect repellent as needed so his grass would stay nice. So yeah. like golf course designers and groundskeepers would come and visit his house and like check out his lovely grass. Hmm. Various varieties of bent grass are still used in golf courses all over the world today. Hmm. Yeah, so Midge had lots of other niche interests too, like the structure of anthills, music of all kinds, poetry. He's actually, a, I guess he was a pretty good poet. I couldn't find anything he wrote, but people said he was pretty good at poetry, so I don't know. Mm, okay. I know. Let's fast forward to 1940 now, when Midge has an attack of poliomyelitis. We all know this as simply polio. It came on rather suddenly, as one day he complained of not feeling well, and the next day he was paralyzed from the waist down. So that was horrible. Well, but he's pretty old. Didn't polio mainly hit kids? Yeah, that's the thing. So Hmm. polio is a viral infection, and it's spread by contact with an infected person. So in the vast majority of cases, people don't show symptoms. Like 75% of the time, you don't have symptoms. Okay. The rest of the time, those infected will become partially or completely paralyzed. This can Mm -hmm. lead to death via suffocation because the muscles in your chest just stop working. Nowadays, we've got a really good vaccine for polio, and we will definitely be telling that story someday, probably in the form of a brawl, but I don't know. But in Midge's time, that wasn't a thing. Right. Well, FDR had polio, and he was in a wheelchair, right? Yes, he was. Um, The iron lung was your best bet to mitigate symptoms. It looks like a torture device if you've never seen one. It is a metal cylinder that you lay down in and your head sticks out of one end, but everything else is enclosed in this tube. And then the tube is pressurized and the pressure is varied, which helps to simulate the act of breathing. We still have iron lungs, but we don't use them nearly as much as they used to. Okay. Wasn't there some movie that came out? It's probably been a minute about like a guy who had an, who was in an iron lung or something. I feel like there was a movie about this. I don't this. know. I don't remember. Anyway, I don't know. Someone tell us. So Midge did not let polio stop him from working. So he moved his bedroom to the main level of his house and carried on with his work, which was at that point with the American Chemical Society and the National Inventors Council. Now, to this point, there hasn't been much, if any, BS in Midge's story. In my opinion, the only BS about his life is how it ended. Midge was very independent, and he didn't like relying on people for help despite the fact that he was paralyzed. So, trigger warning, this is is gonna be unpleasant. To that end, he created a pulley system that he could use to get himself into and out of bed. So he would strap on a harness and lift himself into a wheelchair. On the morning of November 2nd, 1944, Midge's wife found him tangled up in the pulley system because he had strangled to death. Oh. Yeah, it, it was horrible. He was only 55. Oh. Yeah. So, it's again, feels like total BS. It's not, I don't love that he 
you know, was the victim of an accidental death due to one of his inventions. It's horrible. Yeah. Like, cause he was just, he was just doing his best to continue on even after contracting polio and to die in such an ignominious way kind of feels unfair to me. He was a hundred percent mourned by all who knew him though, because he was a likable and interesting guy, but he was a likable and interesting guy. How then did he end up in our BS episode? Because his life wasn't BS. He as a person wasn't BS. Is his science BS? Is the legacy his science left BS? Do you have answers? Well, I mean, we kind of talked about it in the quote, but yeah, we we should talk about it. Let's take a quick break and then Brenna can help us sort it all out. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning, thousands of practice questions with explanations, and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person. MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. So I alluded to some of what Midge worked on, but it's not quite as simple as like the two sentences that I gave it. So Brenna, what did he do? And is it BS? Um, okay, so we need to talk about leaded gas and tetraethyl lead, which is TEL. And I might, I don't know, might mention CFCs too, because I guess we could thank Midge for that. But um, I actually strongly recommend first that if you have not listened to our episode on Alice Hamilton back from season three, episode two, it's called the Tinkerbell of Industrial Medicine, mm-hmm. you should go listen to it. Um, because Alice Hamilton contributed a lot of knowledge to the field about lead exposure and whatnot. And so in that episode, we talk in great detail about the physiological effects of lead poisoning on the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and like there's different types of exposure and what kind of symptoms result from all of that. Okay. So I'm not actually going to go into that here, even though it's, it is related, but we kind of already have, you know, talked about that. So go back to episode three or no episode two of season three, listen to that. If you want kind of more of like the pathological outcomes. Okay. 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 So here's what you need to know. If you choose not to go back and listen to that, lead is bad. It kills you poisonous it's super bad for everyone despite its prolific use throughout literally millennia but especially awful is that and most people are probably aware um lead affects children severely mm-hmm. um so we might talk a little bit more about that in the legacy but just you know lead is bad okay lead is okay. bad it we is. know lead is bad and it's not good for anybody okay 
Now I'm going to pretend that I understand how internal combustion engines work. Okay. Can you tell yeah. me so I can pretend too? Yeah. I'm basically stealing from one of my sources and just kind of like paraphrasing from what they said. And I might even have some direct quotes because I was like, well, I don't know how to say this any other way. Perfect. Okay. So cool. And then once we understand how the internal combustion engine works, then we'll talk about like additives and gas and all that. Okay. Okay. If you're a car expert or a physicist or whatever, just, I don't know, black out for half of this and just pick up on the parts that sound right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, the quote that I read from the beginning was from that book called Unleaded. So basically, I'm, uh, again, just kind of paraphrasing from this. Okay. So your car has an engine. Yes. And the engine has pistons inside of it. Sure. Okay. So the way you get a car started and going is that a mix of gasoline and air gets injected into a cylindrical chamber. Okay. And then a piston pushes into that chamber, compresses that mix of liquid and air. Okay. okay. And then you have a spark plug that, well, creates a spark. Right. Which then causes the combustion. Right. Right. Like if we want to write a chemical reaction, it'd be a hydrocarbon plus oxygen and gets co2 and water right like that's yes. our combustion okay so like a little i guess explosion kind of right yeah okay so that explosion pushes the piston back out of the cylinder mm -hmm. that it pushed it in right which then turns the crankshaft okay. and i don't i don't know i guess the engine roars to life and all is well okay that's you know what there's probably a lot more to it but you know we're just gonna okay here we are uh, like, you know, we have like four and six and eight cylinder engines and stuff. I don't, I don't know. Okay. But that's the basic. Okay. 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 So here's the problem. The more you compress a gas, the higher the temperature. Correct. Okay. Which recall, we have the gasoline, which already has a certain amount of vapor pressure because mm -hmm. it's a low boiler compound, right? right? Gasoline is a hydrocarbon. So it's got a pretty low vapor pressure, vapor right. fixed and then air. Okay. Yeah. Guillaume-Sacks law tells us that temperature and pressure of a gas are directly proportional, mm -hmm. or if you like the ideal gas law, right? PV equals nRT. But I love the ideal gas law; it's one of my favorite things in chemistry. But P is proportional to T. Okay. Yes. Directly proportional. So, so if pressure increases, temperature increases. Okay. Correct. Okay. And that makes sense. Like if you're talking molecular kinetic theory of gases, like if the pressure increases, you're making these things move around more and faster. And if they're moving around faster and colliding more, then that's more heat. Yeah. Because it's more sense. Energy. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. It all is all good. That's all good chemistry. I can get behind all this. Yeah. So if you're at some pressure, but then decrease the volume of the space it can fill, you know, pressure goes up all the stuff. Okay. Why do we care? Well, the more compression you can get in an engine, the more power you get out of it because it will cause the piston to travel further. Like, remember, oh. like it shoots it back up, whatever. Okay. And just like Tim, the tool man, Taylor, everybody wants more power, yes. right? More power. Yeah. Oh, that takes me back. I think you can watch it on Disney Plus or something. I'm going to look into that. That was a great Which, show. I might see if, like, my older one would watch it. She might like it. I my liked kids, it. It was a good show. My kids would like it. I think she would. We liked like it when we were their age. I know. 
Although now I bet we're going to watch it and there's going to be so many things that went over our heads that I'm probably going to be scandalized. But we're going to be horrified. Yes. We're going to be like songs that we listen to. What were you doing? Letting us sing this out loud in the car. Yeah. With you. Look, you're the one that sang Madonna, not me. I did. I was three. It was hilarious. (laughs) Okay. So um, you have to consider the cost of increasing the compression in your engine because if it gets too hot, because of all that pressure, remember mm-hmm. pressure is going up, but then the temperature is going up. Mm-hmm. You will get that explosion in the engine that you would normally be relying on the spark plug for. Oh. So that's what knocking is. Oh, like if the engine is knocking, it's these spontaneous explosions in your engine. I don't want my car to do anything exploding spontaneously well, like related. Those, but, it, but I mean, it's like instead of having that controlled, like that one time of like yeah. the explosion to get the piston going, now it's doing that. So knocking actually reduces an engine's power yeah. because the whole idea of the piston compressing a certain amount and then having the spark plug ignite is basically to maximize the potential of the piston's movement. But if you have random explosions going on when the piston is just like wherever it is, then you're not getting the most power out of that pistons. Movement, yeah. Right. Yeah. Sure. I don't, again, guys, I'm like paraphrasing off of this lady's book and I'm hoping. No, like, that makes sense to me. Yeah, sounds okay. So it's the difference of a controlled combustion reaction with the spark plug versus an uncontrolled combustion reaction. Okay. 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 So some fuels are more prone to exploding than others. And then there's this measurement we still use today called a fuel's octane rating and you might not realize that's what it is when you look at the gas pump and choose like regular gas which is like what 87 87 yeah and then plus is 89 and premium is 93 or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah so the octane rating is a measure of the ability of that fuel to resist exploding under pressure oh it's compared to iso octane as a basis for that number hence an octane rating because it's okay that they base it off of Okay? okay But a larger number means that it can be at a higher pressure before having those uncontrolled combustion reactions. Oh, so that's what the bougie gas is for. Well, so the reason that there are cars where it, like, it matters where whether you're putting the gasoline, the right octane level, is that if the engine's designed to go to a higher pressure, then you need a higher octane rating. Yeah, because if you don't, then it's gonna have you could have that knocking. Yeah. Which, like one time we had, I don't know, one was it we had some gas shortage or something, and I had to put in normal gas, not the fancy hoity-toity yeah. gas. But I read up because I was on the phone with Dad for quite some time because my husband was certain that I, my car was just gonna completely explode. Like the whole thing was just gonna explode. My car was ru- my engine was ruined forever. We're gonna need a new engine. It's not like you put diesel in unleaded. Right. Like that would ruin your engine. Right. But I, I like researched and it, there's different ways. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but you can do it every now and again, if you need to. And there's maybe some cars you didn't necessarily have to put the premium in. You just, if you know things about engines, you can probably figure out. But anyway, when cars were first put out there in the early 20th century, the fuels used were fairly low octane, which means a low compression ratio, Okay, which means not a lot of power. So for example, a Model T in the early days maxed out like 45 miles per hour. Yeah. So we need balance. How do we get more compression with a fuel so that we can get more power without sacrificing the engine to knocking? Yeah. Which can ultimately ruin your engine. Like if it continues to do that, that is not going to be good for your engine. Okay. So that was the question, a question that scientists of the day were grappling with when cars were were becoming a thing. 
Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, they knew back then that ethanol was actually pretty good at this. It had a higher octane rating compared to gasoline. And in fact, in 1826, when the first internal combustion engine was invented, it ran on alcohol and turpentine. The first four-cylinder engine also ran on alcohol, and the first engine that Ford built also was powered by ethanol. Interesting. Alcohol. Okay. So basically, ethanol was being proposed as a fuel to power cars, even at the beginning of the 20th century. <laughs> I read that some early Model A Fords had a knob you could use to switch between using ethanol or gasoline as your fuel, which I think is kind of interesting. It's very interesting. Is that like what we do now? Where we like... Is that where they got the idea that maybe we could just switch between electric and gas? I have no idea. That's outside of that's outside of my scope. That's beyond know. the scope of our discussion yeah. today. Yeah. Guys, I had to learn all these things and pretend that I understand. I mean, it makes sense when I say it, but I, again, I'm paraphrasing from somebody else's explanation because we're yes, we are not gearheads no. at all in any way now, would i watch do i watch top gear for yeah entertainment value of course but do i actually understand a lot of it no no okay so you've got a lot of people out there at this time trying to come up with the best way to maximize power and compression without knocking enter midge at gm well i guess delco but gm but okay. gm yeah who gets assigned to work on the knocking issue and GM or Delco really wanted to compete with Ford by building better, faster cars, but the knocking issue is a holdup to yeah. the goal. Okay. So Tom is actually the person who figured out what caused knocking, that those uncontrolled explosions were to blame. And he actually also developed that octane scale that we talked about. Oh, okay. Like that was his scale of um, what fuels could withstand compression and how well they could. Okay. So he goes to work testing stuff out, which from what I read sounds like besides ethanol, which people kind of already knew about, he tested other stuff that was some combination of expensive, corrosive, and or smelly. Well, smelly, I think, was just for one compound. I think it was sulfur-based. Of course. But it was so smelly that when he was testing that one at work, his wife made him sleep on the couch when he came home because he smelled so bad. See, and Mrs. But Charles Goodyear could have taken lessons. See, exactly. Mrs. Charles Goodyear could have taken some advice from... Yeah. you know, Carrie and said, Chuck, get this out of here. Although had he not been allowed to experiment at home, maybe he would have never discovered vulcanized rubber. Rediscovered question mark. Anyway. Question mark. anyway, all this testing goes on. And then Tom and his buddies get out the periodic table and they're looking for things that have shown promise in terms of addressing the issue of knocking. Mm-hmm. And this exercise led them get out to lead of course it did it led them to lead <laughs> i have to get my puns in when i can sorry not sorry i don't have a pun today for the teaser so you know so there was we were due that's all right but yeah it's been a little i've been a little you know low on the puns lately i don't like it so tom called this a scientific fox hunt to find their next additive okay, okay. so in 1853 some scientists in Germany created a compound called tetraethyl lead, or TEL, as I mentioned earlier. Okay. And TEL is somehow the compound Midge picks to add to gasoline. It's fairly cheap, it dissolved readily, and he found that even a small amount of TEL increased the octane number a lot. Remember, a big octane number means it can withstand a higher pressure. Yeah. And so if you're trying to overcome that knocking issue but get more power, you need more pressure without these uncontrolled explosions, okay? Yeah. 
And Tom told a colleague that it was, quote, really the answer to the whole problem. Except for, was it? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) so Tom actually said later, quote, the popular idea might be that when we found tetraethyl lead, we shouted hosannas for it and all marched in to ask the boss for a raise. Actually, there was not a pause in the program. We started spending more money doing more research and looking for other ingredients to go with tetraethyl lead to make up a commercially practical compound that could transfer the anti-knock qualities of tetraethyl lead to a gallon of gasoline. We thought we knew what we had, but we knew we knew very little about it. We had to find the answers, the right answers, to many questions. So I'm going to give him like a little bit of credit of like, they didn't just say, TEL is it, that's all, we're done give us money so we can retire like they they knew that they still needed to kind of investigate this okay yeah i admire that but when it was tested it was noted that tel left a grayish yellow lead oxide residue on exhaust valves combustion chamber etc which is pretty toxic yeah so it's not great for the engine bits but also it's making lead oxide They then found that 1,2-dibromoethane added to the TEL fuel prevented lead deposits from building up because the dibromoethane reacting with lead created lead bromide, which was volatile enough to just get pushed out through the exhaust. Uh Uh-oh. That would also prove problematic, well, for multiple reasons, but um, bromine was not readily accessible either, and it was expensive. Dow Chemical actually got on board with this, and a bromine extraction plant was built in North Carolina to build up supplies. They extract it from seawater, actually, and then they, during World War II, they put a plant in Freeport, Texas, which apparently could, as of 2003, process up to 550 million gallons of seawater every day to extract bromine. I guess it's oh still gosh. happening. Anyway, North Carolina, congratulations on having a bromine extraction plant, but you still didn't fly first, okay? okay. Yeah, like, yes, facts. Good job on that. Leave flight alone. <laughs> All Ohioans, I think, are really salty about it, but especially if you're from the Dayton area, because you grew up going to, like, the Wright Brothers bicycle shop and the Wright Brothers this and right. Literally that, everything that. is the is right. Right state. We they have a university, friends. Yeah. Like it's so we get a little salty about it. Okay. So when TEL was added to fuel, it doubled the compression ratios of the engine. Oh, but that's really good though. Yeah. So GM and Standard Oil got together to sell this new fuel, but someone in marketing did a great job because they just called it ethyl gasoline and left off the whole lead thing the whole tetraethyl lead yeah wow ethyl gasoline so good job marketing but also maybe your bs i don't know oh yeah this is their even again by this time if you go back to alice hamilton people knew lead was problematic yes okay so we already have the attention of like lead has a poisonous nature, it's bad and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that for her was like in the workplace, but it was still acknowledged that I think we we talked about it's like Australia knew like well before the United States, like, hey, you know what's not good for kids? Lead, you know? Yeah. Anyway. No, they definitely knew by this time. So the people who know that it is tetraethyl lead being added do have some concerns and they did voice these concerns in various ways and through various channels i think there was some kind of governmental federal investigation even into this oh 
meanwhile, GM slash Standard Oil, they like made some new company or something. They need to ramp up the TEL production Mm -hmm. so that they can keep adding it to the gasoline. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes on with this. And I I am kind of skimming over because we all know how I feel about talking about like legal stuff. Oh, yeah. No, we're not doing civil law. Mm -mm. But I think there was some kind of something. Okay. Um, Ramping up TEL production came with a lot of challenges as well. The processes themselves for making it aren't super friendly. DuPont gets brought in to develop a commercial scale-up process and implements that for TEL production. But in one article, which I think is actually open access, there's like a flow chart for the process of making TEL and it's super complicated. Oh. So it's it's just not, you know, like we can it's do- It's not just as simple as just make more. Like it's- Right. Like add these two things together. Now you have tetraethyl lead. Like it's a very complicated process to get okay. this. Okay. Which again, you're dealing with lead and you're dealing with an inorganic transition metal thing. So like, just don't, if you just don't mess with transition metals, like I'm just saying, okay. So from a chemical standpoint, why does TEL work as an anti-knock agent? Okay. So tetraethyl lead, it's four ethyl groups, which is mm-hmm. CH2, CH3 groups, right? Mm-hmm. Attached to a lead atom. Mm-hmm. Ethyl groups are nonpolar. So is gasoline. Okay. Right. So yeah. that's why it dissolves really well because you've got a lot of nonpolar residues on the lead, or whatever, mm-hmm. that can be dissolved into the gasoline. Okay. The, the the problem with that though, like it dissolves really well in hydrocarbons, but that makes it really lipophilic, um, which means it can also diffuse through the blood and brain barrier and stuff. Yeah, not, not good. Not good. So I found the full reactions for the combustion of TEL, and it's like, so it's PB. CH2, C2H54, like so the tetraethylene oxygen yeah. goes to eight carbon dioxides plus 10 waters plus PB. And then there's also um, with that, the same TEL plus 27 moles of oxygen go to 16 moles of CO2 plus 20 moles of H2O plus two lead oxides. Okay, so remember we said that we were getting lead oxides. Mm-hmm. So if you get lead and lead oxide as your products of combustion, okay, you add that dibromoethane I was talking about. And what happens is that you get the tetraethyl lead, the dibromoethane plus the oxygen mm-hmm. gives you the carbon dioxide, the water, and the lead bromide. Okay. Okay. Got it. So basically they're just adding it so that instead of getting the lead and lead oxide products, which stick in the engine and around the exhaust pipe, somehow this lead bromide was more volatile or more readily like released from the engine and stuff okay 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 now during that whole engine combustion thing yeah that i described right apparently you also get some pyrolyzed radicals that's according to wikipedia which then i guess gets quenched by ethyl radicals that form from the tel that's in there which that's what helps keep the unwanted combustion from occurring okay got it so it's it's some radical quenching stuff as well. Okay. And that's okay. So the only the controlled combustion from the spark plug drives the power of the engine. I don't really I just I don't know. That's that's the extent of what I can tell you with any bare bare minimum of confidence. Okay? Okay. So February 1st, 1923 in Dayton, Ohio, the first gallon of leaded gas was pumped at a gas station that belonged to a friend of Charles Kettering. Huh. 
And TEL was originally sold to these gas stations separately from the gasoline. And then the gasoline attendant had to just mix in the red liquid, TEL, to the gas at the pump. I'm very uncomfortable with that. Feels all kinds of dangerous to me. Feels like Alice Hamilton would have had a thing or two to say about that. Isn't it? Well, I don't know anymore, but for a long time, even when I was in college, I think it was like Oregon, you still weren't allowed to pump your own gas. In New Jersey, you still can't. In New Jersey. I don't know if that's true in Oregon, but I just remember that there was a girl on my hall who's from Oregon and we went to the gas station. She was like, I've never pumped gas before. Like, what? Why? Yeah, it was mind blowing. Anyway. Okay, so lead leaded gas is very popular with the drivers because people now are able to drive up to 50% farther on a gallon of gas. Yeah. So you're increasing that power of the engine without sacrificing anything to the knocking problem and everything. Yeah. Within one and a half years, leaded gas was at like 10,000 gas stations across 27 seven different states. Whoa. So like it took off. Yeah. Then in 1924, there's a plant in Elizabeth, New Jersey, that makes TEL. And five workers died and 35 had convulsions and hallucinations and the violent insanity of the poison workers was actually written about. Like, it was written about their violent insanity. And it became like a national story. Um, Because, again, the TEL production process, not great. Yeah. But now there's more questions being raised because uh is this is everything good with tel if this is happening at this production plant whatever possibly no so one guy who had results from an independent study said that those tests that they did in this independent study showed two grams of metallic lead per gallon of gas were produced and probably as lead oxide or maybe even lead carbonate but those powdery substances lead oxide and lead carbonate uh really bad yeah to be breathing in yeah for humans probably for animals too but i don't know does lead affect animals cns the way lead or the way it does for humans i can't remember uh i don't think we talked about that can animals have lead poisoning does it affect their central nervous system the way it affects? it's got to because like if they drink the same tap water that's got lead in it like wouldn't they they have problems too i don't know all right, someone look up if animals can get lead poisoning because we need to know. Like, if you had a dog who licked your door that had lead paint, would they get stupider? I mean, dogs are. And how would you tell? How would you know? Okay, anyway. Okay, so this is where things get contentious. And from what I saw, Tom was just like, no, the amount of lead released from using this fuel is going to be so small, you won't detect it in the air. He had literally zero scientific data to back that up. I think he was just really optimistic, oh. and it was his idea. Oh. So I feel like he just didn't want it to end up in the trash can. Oh. But I don't know. Like, again, it's it's murky. I don't, I don't have, like, a great, okay, you know, don't have my finger quite on the pulse, really, to okay. know exactly. Okay. What ends up happening is that by the 1930s, more than 90% of gasoline is leaded. And it wouldn't be until the 1970s that researchers were finally able to demonstrate how harmful all that leaded gas exposure actually was, Mm -hmm. especially to children. They finally got enough attention for the government to decide that they should phase out leaded gas. Not just like, please stop using this because you're poisoning the children. They're like, okay, let's, yeah, let's just like phase it out. Just phase it out. Okay, this is the 70s. Mm. It was 1996, officially, 
when the U.S. outlawed leaded gas. We were alive when they outlawed it? I think by that point, mom and dad could tell us, I think by that point, it probably had been phased out because they wanted them to start phasing out, but it wasn't officially outlawed until 1996 in the United States. What? That's wild. Could we maybe do a little bit better? I feel like we could have done maybe better with that if we knew that it was so completely toxic. Do Do a little better there, you know. Again, other countries, I think, did this a long time ago and were like, you know what's not good in products? Lead. Lead. But today you see that your gasoline does have ethanol in it, and that is because it is something that helps prevent knocking, which, again, they knew a long time ago that Mm -hmm. ethanol had the ability to or had a higher octane rating, but ethanol by itself doesn't really ethanol by itself causes its own troubles but yes. you you see when you go to the gas station like with less than 10 percent or up to 10 percent ethanol or whatever yeah. but that's kind of now in there for that um okay. also i don't know all the advancements in engine technology and like you said do they knock anymore i don't know yeah. i i don't know so if you're a gearhead you can tell us if now these engines are even capable of this but or if you're just an ordinary person who like was alive in the 70s, the 80s and the 90s and was driving and putting gas in your car at that time, maybe because if you were shopping for a car in the like 80s, was it like a, well, this one takes unleaded? Like, is that a th- like- Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, Basically what I'm going to say is all we need to know is that unleaded gas with different additives that aren't producing deadly chemicals- works now and we all right. happily drive our car well i mean not deadly in the sense that it's not like spewing out something that is really obviously toxic and bad and you know i'm not yeah. getting into all the other things of fuel and etc but whatever right. that's beyond the scope beyond the scope very briefly because it probably needs to be factored in when we do discuss how we feel about this guy midge mm-hmm. is also responsible for freon yeah this was another case of gm said hey midge and others we would really love a non-toxic non-flammable non-explosive refrigerant because pretty much everything else on the market is one of those things yes and tom and midge as we discovered is a problem solver yes he's trying to solve these problems Yes. So they start investigating alkyl halides because they're very volatile mm-hmm. you need that for a refrigerant and we're not getting into the science of refrigerants because nope. I've already watched enough things talking about engines today. But chemically, these things are fairly inert, so there's like no explosions. So they basically end up with Freon 12, which is dichlorofluoromethane, which is the first CFC or the chlorofluorocarbons, right? CFCs. Yeah. Um, one of the or is the first. Freon 12 was the first one developed. Okay. Uh, Midge thought thought that the carbon fluoride bond would be a good one so that it wasn't like going to break down into anything toxic dangerous etc like if the if carbon and fluoride are similar in terms of like that bond is fairly um stable it's not going to like break apart or whatever um it doesn't produce like toxic chemicals. It's not going to break down and so forth. And he got a lot of accolades for this at the time. And of course, these types of CFCs replaced other refrigerants and got used in other applications. Mm -hmm. The problem with CFCs is that they deplete the ozone layer, which is not great. 
So they also, at this point, I believe are still being phased out. Um, but same kind of thing there. They're um, for sure illegal now. Yeah. But I think like if there are like, if you have a refrigerator from the seventies, I, I not... think you have to be able to run it. And I don't know that, you know what I mean? That's what, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, I think there's, it's still potentially out there. It's just, again, they're kind of being phased out. So they're, well, again, Wikipedia says that hydrofluorocarbons are taking the place of CFCs. But I guess don't deplete the ozone layer the way that CFCs do. Again, okay. I didn't get into the science of this. I'm only mentioning this so we can kind of discuss his legacy. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just keep in mind that Freon and CFCs, if you're familiar with that, was also the creation of Midge. our boy Midge. And you would, I would, I don't know. I would think that for a guy who loved chemistry as much as he did. Well, but he got a degree in mechanical engineering. So is there a disconnect between his degree and what his passion was? Is that is that why we had yeah. this happening? I, I don't know. know. I don't know. Anyway, since I'm focusing on the science bit here, I'm not going to go more into the fallout from the creation of leaded gas from here because that gets us into the territory of like, who is funding what? And probably following money trails would tell you a lot about what you needed to know about why leaded gas continues to be used. And we just, we're not going to go. We're just not going to go there. That's not what we talk about so on the show. Read yeah. other things if you would like to know about political um, influences on science, which is not unusual, but we don't talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. Well, actually, well, political influence on science is kind of the vibe of our finale for the season actually so if you want to hear yeah. about it yeah. check out lesson there's check out yeah that one we kind of can't avoid as yeah much. Ch check out here. check out episodes 11 and 12 if you want to hear more about that so i have a bit more to say about the effects of leaded gas but i think that kind of gets us into the territory of is midge a total bs or not so i think we should get into the legacy yeah yeah, let's take a break and find out because I have mixed feelings. So here we are again with a complicated legacy to discuss in our BS episode. It's not just as simple as this guy was scum. He did scummy things and they were scientific. That's what we like. We I, That's what we like in a BS episode. It's very cut and dry. But I would not say that Midge's legacy is quite that simple because in my opinion, like here we are again, tarnishing a man's good name because we continued to learn stuff like midge would be a bad dude if he knew for sure that all the stuff he did would have a negative impact he didn't quite know that however he was simply doing his best from what i can tell i don't agree with people who call him a quote one man environmental disaster or the guy who quote possessed an instinct for the regrettable that was almost uncanny Although that one is maybe closer to true because think about how he died. And although that last characterization is not as insulting as others, he still did seem to come up with some ideas that we were able to phase out later after we learned more science. Yeah. I'm also not sure I agree with the characterization that his inventions are some of the worst ever. A bad invention for me is one that doesn't do what it's supposed to do. <laughs> And so in that way, Midge's inventions were entirely good in that they did exactly what he wanted them to do. Mm -hmm. The impact on the world because of his inventions was not thrilling, but mm -hmm. we cannot call him the worst 
just because we learned more science and can make different choices now. So, cause I'm, I'm doing a mini episode wherein I will tell you some inventions that were good, but also bad for different reasons. So it, it's more complicated than that sometimes. And, and this is not an uncommon thing that happens in science. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that Midge was BS. I think that his science was unfortunate and the result was, was worthy of the BS episode. Okay. So I got some some things to discuss. I first want to read a quote. Again, it's from that um, unleaded book that I mentioned. From the beginning, involved in the development of TEL had concerns about its safety. In 1922, DuPont was run by two brothers, and one brother wrote to the other brother that their new pro- product, TEL, was, quote, very poisonous, if absorbed through the skin, resulting in lead poisoning almost immediately. One of Thomas Midgley's co-workers, Tabby Boyd, later said that, quote, from the outset, it was appreciated that putting tetraethyl lead into gasoline might possibly introduce a health hazard. The first opinion of the doctors who were consulted were full of such frightening phrases as gray fears, distinct risk, widespread lead poisoning. The source of the possible hazard to health thought of at first was not so much that from the tetraethyl lead itself as that from finely divided lead dust in engine exhaust. In addition, Kettering's lab received letters from numerous public health and toxicology experts expressing their concern. Midgley himself suffered from lead poisoning in 1923 and went to recuperate in Florida. Hmm. So that's um, from, from that book. So it's kind of interesting. Again, it's, you know, I don't know. Could they have maybe been a little bit more careful, more thorough, probably, did they do it maliciously? No. Um, I just, I feel like his legacy is a tough one. Um, in another article, the author wrote, Midgley was a truly remarkable man, remarkably creative, but always focused on practical problems, extremely persistent in his search for a solution. His two great discoveries, the tetraethyl lead anti-knock agent and the chlorofluoromethane refrigerants had short half-lives, but they were important in their time, permitting important technological advances the modern automobile and air conditioning and safe refrigeration. That the use of these compounds was dangerous to the environment was not generally appreciated until some years after their discovery. So kind of making that point of like you said, okay, well, at the time, we didn't know how bad of the science, especially with the CFCs. We didn't know how bad that was. Like That was a new thing he just like came up with. A new thing. And so I think some of that might be up for debate at least with the leaded gas, because it does feel like maybe there were concerns from the outset. They, they knew there were problems with the TEL production. They knew there were kind of some issues with the use of TEL. But they Midgley wasn't the guy making the final good. call. What? Midgley wasn't the guy making the final call. Well, though. right. I mean, that's the thing. Like, lead was not good. There were lead byproducts being produced and released into the air. But yeah, was was Midge the guy who was going to single-handedly be able to stop it? Because even if he had discovered it, started doing it they discovered the lead oxide deposits and he was like you know what actually this is probably really bad i'm not sure that the higher-ups in the company would have been like yes we're gonna tank this idea that could literally make us bazillions of dollars and make our cars way better yeah well, oh yeah we'll we'll turn it down because well, you know people you know that down. actuaries were involved in that you know that actuarial science had a hand in that decision because they asked an actuary and they said hey figure out how many people this could kill versus how much money we'll make yeah, maybe. I mean, that's and and that wasn't Midge. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think Thomas or Midge was like, 
hey, you know what I want to do? Poison literally generations of kids. <laughs> right. No, he did not. Like, obviously he, did not. he didn't. I Again, maybe maybe be more thorough. But if you want to be mad about leaded gas, put this in your satchel. Up until 2021, there was still a country out there with a supply of leaded gas they were using. In fact, in general, developing countries continue to use leaded gas well into the 21st century. I think it was 2002 or 2003 when the UN finally was like, hey, we should maybe help these other countries like quit using this stuff. So my final thought on this is about an article I read that in 2022, a study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, mm-hmm. where researchers at FSU and Duke looked at IQ related to people born before 1996, when leaded gas was officially outlawed, even though I think it had been phased out. But they were like, okay, 1996 was like the cutoff point. So they, right. you know, they took gas consumption data, population estimates, etc., from basically the 1960s to 1996, and collectively. America lost 824 million IQ points, which on average is 2.6 points per person on average, according to the study. But if they looked at subsets of that data, they saw that people from the 1960s and 70s lost closer to 6 to 7 points per person, which would means that the, the the children that were alive in the 60s and 70s leaded gas was still exclusively being used as you hit the 70s to the 80s it was getting phased out so the children in the 1960s and 70s were basically what they're saying is more affected in their iq okay so which the data I mean, is skewed in the ne- like it, it's skewed toward the heavy end in the 60s and 70s right okay and look look i'm not trying to be a fear monger and be like oh my gosh but because it's, I mean, that's not that much unless you have people on the lower end of the IQ range to begin with, right? Yeah, right. So maybe that's bigger. But I'm just like, I just feel like we cannot afford to lose any IQ points here. I would agree. Anymore. Look, look, I teach college kids like, y'all, we can't afford to be losing any IQ points. So, yeah. But they also estimated that more than 170 million Americans as of 2015 would have had a greater than five microgram per deciliter lead level in childhood. So greater than five. FYI, 3.5 is considered too high. Oh, dear. So that's not good, you know. Mm -hmm. So I guess that lead exposure is linked to things like dementia, uh, though, in old age. And I didn't deep dive into this, but like, are they seeing an uptick in dementia patients as these baby boomers like the the children of the 50s 60s 70s are getting older like I I, it would be interesting to see if they've noticed that there's I mean that's going to be hard to do because I think in one sense it's diagnosed more now because we understand it more yeah but there still might be a like a longitudinal study out there that they can do or that they've been doing where we might get some kind of an answer like our parents were kids in the 60s yeah so like I don't love that I don't love that either I like and are there peers yeah. like I don't I don't, I don't know. know 
I'm sure that mom and dad will have things to say. Like we might, yeah. we'll probably be chock full of addenda next time. I hope have, so. I hope right? we can learn something. So I just, I mean, I didn't, again, guys, I didn't deep dive and these are not exhaustive stats or anything, but I just kind of wanted to, like, if we're saying, okay, what is his legacy? You know, how many kids were actually affected or how much in general did it really shape, change, affect, whatever, what kind of what was going on and whatever. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe the maybe the BS is that just it probably wouldn't have mattered even if Midgley was like, you guys have to stop using this. I think things were already in motion. So From blaming read, him, yeah. as you said, blaming him doesn't make any sense. Like is leaded gas BS? Yeah, it's not yeah. good. No. We can all agree that leaded gas is thumbs down. Like yeah. For sure the happen. BS in this episode is leaded gas. It's yeah. the bad guy. Yeah. And it's I... always in its villain era. And I can give Midge a little bit of the credit for it, but yeah, not the whole, not the whole thing. So anyway, it was kind of an interesting avenue of research for me. It wasn't one of my, I'll be honest, it wasn't one of my favorite episodes to research, but it was interesting. So yeah, yeah. that's what I got. All right then. So a difficult and complex legacy from a, from a BS episode, we're starting to find that as a pattern maybe next season we'll have to do someone where it's clear that it's bs all we have to do is just find another doctor who worked during the third reich so well yeah but we kind of i feel like we've exhausted the ways in which nazis ruin things so yeah. we've, we've taken a break from that this, i'm just saying like that would be a really definitive like this true. guy true or the or more. the guy who electrically shocked things to make them move that's oh, yeah. bse mm -hmm. too yeah. i don't know i don't know when he's due i don't think he's going to be next season but we'll mm -hmm. talk to the scheduler see what no, she we does. have to talk about i'm not doing the science for that you're I doing do, the i will that. do the science for that that's that fine. horrifies me i watched I that one a and e special about frankenstein and deeple and the, the other guys and stuff yeah, i couldn't i felt sick i felt like i was gonna throw up I will do the science if we schedule that episode. I'm going to have to skip ahead in the podcast episode when we're recording. You can't skip ahead. You signed on for it. I didn't sign on to talk about that. That's vomitrocious. Vomitrocious. I'm pretty sure that's a real word. I like it. Even if it's not, it is now. I'm Googling it right now to find out if it's a word. I really hope it is. I feel like it is. Vomitrocious. Let's see. And does it mean what we want it to mean? Because oh, it could be a word. It is um, a word, apparently. Well, I don't know. Let's see. It's slang. Still. Possibly started by the show Arthur. Like Arthur and his like, DW? Like, Aardvark thing. Yeah. yeah. No way. Mm-hmm. I I believe that might be, let's see, I need like an actual, you see, Urban Dictionary will keep it, we'll put it in there. I need Merriam-Webster like the regular Dictionary. Yeah, I don't see, oh, there's literally an episode of Arthur called Vomitrocious. Oh, so it's, so, it's a colloquialism then. Apparently, thanks, Arthur. That's weird, you literally I never liked show. Arthur, did you? hated it hot take maybe you guys did but i hated arthur i hated dw too she was literally the worst i would run she around with the car i don't like I... her at all 
And I don't understand if he was like he was supposed to be an aardvark, wasn't he? Was he supposed to be an aardvark I, or something? I don't know. I he just they all looked weird. I don't like it. Anyway, vomitrocious. There you have it. Okay. And yes, I have just Googled also Arthur is supposed to be an aardvark, but I don't feel like he looks like an aardvark and his sister looks more like a monkey. And I'm just not really sure what's going on in this family. And can you have like a cross species aardvark monkey family? Because I really don't feel like that's a thing. Because her face is like really round. Right? Didn't she have like a really round yeah, face? Was, yes, she looks more like a monkey than an aardvark. But then there was Francine who, I don't know what's Francine supposed to be because she really looked like like a chimpanzee or something. I don't know. Anyway, she really guys, was? I'll just start Googling. Oh, Francine is definitely a monkey. Okay. But I just feel like DW is like, she's supposed to be, she's supposed to be. I do know that she's obnoxious and that's kind of all you need to know. Super obnoxious. Anyway. Anyway, look at us, look at us doing research live in time. Do you want to talk about your sources where you did research from like, you know, other sources besides the internet? So Unleaded, How Changing Our Gasoline Changed Everything by Carrie Nielsen was my major source. She's the one that helped me explain literally anything I told you about engines and how they work. Cool. And there was an NBC News article and it was is the lead gasoline um, blunted IQ, half of the U.S. population, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's an NPR or, um, article about the world has finally stopped using leaded gasoline. Oh, I think it was Algeria was the last stockpile. Oh, okay, interesting. Okay. And then the article, The Rise and Fall of Tetraethyl Lead by Dietmar Safer, which is in Organometallics, but I believe that's the one that talks about the TEL production with the flow chart and I think is open access. I think I got to it without having to access through like school university. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So if the reference librarian will get her back together and try to get these actually posted. That'd be great. That's what I got. Okay. I only had two sources. It's uh, one was called from the periodic table to production, the life of Thomas Midgley Jr. by Thomas Midgley the fourth. So he wrote a book about his grandpa, which I thought was nice. And then we have the National Academy of Sciences Biographical Memoir of Thomas Midgley Jr. by Charles F. Kettering himself. Hmm. For my main sources. Only sources, actually. He's not a super... If you want to find a source on this guy, you have to go to theworstscientistsever.com. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. That's not... You're just going to drag this guy. I want to know about his life. Yeah, so. so that's our guy. So shall we tease next week are we ready to tease um so guys this might be a first i honestly just was not inspired like normally the teasers like come to me you know Mm -hmm. and i can make a pun or do i got nothing i i just i have a blank space on my page for where this teaser should be so we're going to maybe have a BA in science first. And Maggie, can you tease next week's episode? I can. And I'm actually glad that you mentioned blank space because, you Is know. I'll write your name. So I'll write your name, right? So we're going to write this guy's name in, in blank space here. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, though. But if you're into Taylor Swift or specifically musicians like... Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day, then you have 
heard the product, the modern day product of what this guy invented. Hmm. Okay. I don't think T Swift uses this guy's invention, but I definitely know the Billy Joe Armstrong does. So, well, you're not a Swifty, so I'm not a. I'm too. I'm too old to be a Swifty, unfortunately. Are so. you? I'm. I'm an elder millennial. I'm an elder millennial. If you're a okay, true but I millennial. Think I've, I have seen other people on Instagram, these influencers who are our age, your age, and they're going. I, I don't. I'm I mean, too, I'm not a Swifty either. I don't care. But I mean, I, I mean, okay. Yeah, she can write a pop song. Okay, cool. But like, you know, I'm not going to spend that kind of money to... Mm to indulge that's not a thing that there are other concerts that i would rather go see we'll say it that way one of them was actually a green day concert wherein Mm. i got to hear the result of our ba's invention and it was an amazing concert and i loved it so so yeah we have it and in fact other i i got i went to a concert that was fallout boy weezer and green day and that None makes you old. Go on. It does, but I we were not the oldest people there, Ooh. nor were we the nor were we the youngest. So mm-hmm. okay. I know it was very cool. It was right after it was the first concert that we went to after COVID. So it was, it was a couple mm-hmm. years ago now. But I it, other groups that were at this concert were using other varieties of the thing mm-hmm. that this guy invented, mm-hmm. and you can definitely hear a difference. I can anyway. So okay, I spent a lot of time listening before this episode is primary research so okay yeah so i have a lot to say so it's going to be fun next week see if you guys can guess so uh but that's all i've got for this week same all right then until next time live dangerously do science